Well, good morning, church, both here and watching. We, uh, we're glad that you're with us. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Galatians. I wanted to say just a couple things just before we jump in this morning. I appreciate Gene uh, just reminding us this morning to be praying for our church during this, this time of uh, trying to figure out the budget. Um, just a little bit of a reminder, we've, uh, we said as elders that we were shooting for 2022 to have a completely balanced budget. We're moving, which meant that we, we need to move about halfway to that, which meant cuts already. And uh, so um, I have said uh, many times in the last few weeks, I don't like budget season during a normal year. Um, and so then you add it to the pressure that we're under just as churches in general. I met uh, with a group of pastors on uh, Wednesday, and uh, you know, uh, we had talked about early on as pastors, when I, and I can still remember the weekend when this was first kind of coming to a head here in the United States. Rich and I uh, were at the uh, annual enrichment retreat in Seaside, and you just, each day as you're watching the news, you know, um, we didn't know whether we were just going to get, the, the conference was going to get closed down. And we, we finished the conference and we're watching the news. And I think it was a week later that everything just kind of began to shut down. And we talked about as elders that this could be, uh, you know, compared to like a hard winter or a long winter. And a hard winter, right, when you, when you have that storm that comes unexpectedly, you know, and especially in Portland, you just can't go anywhere for the weekend, right? You just kind of you just kind of uh, hunker down, you know, and uh, you raid the grocery store, and then you just have kind of a, a long extra week off because of the snow. But sometimes you have like a hard winter, and the hard winter is made, now you might need to really go invest in those studded tires. You might have to really kind of change your regular practices. Uh, you might have to pay extra in heating bills and things like that. But folks, we're six months into this. We are beyond a long winter now. And what some had feared that this might be the next ice age, in a way. Um, we are looking at um, all the different information and things can change, obviously, in an election year. But this may be like this for another six months, at least. And so we, as a church, are trying to make plans. And I'll just say this, there was no class in seminary about how to grow a church during a pandemic. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe they had that during Frank's day, but they didn't have that during my day at seminary. And, you know, the reality is we weren't growing as a church before the pandemic. And, uh, and so we're struggling. And other churches are struggling too. I mentioned early on, the first three months, we were amazed as pastors how giving kept up during the pandemic. We're all, as pastors, beginning to see that trend change um, and giving is, is dropping off. And so we're praying um, that God not only would just help us understand what he wants us to do with his church during this time, but how we continue to love God, love people, and make disciples. We, that, that hasn't changed in what we are doing. So that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Um, I, I really do believe that healthy things grow. And if we can be a healthy church, um, we can grow even in the midst of difficult times. And so we've been looking at Galatians, and our theme for Galatians is that the gospel creates a multi-ethnic family that is transformed 
by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we get the gospel right, when we really understand the gospel and we don't change it or add to it, but we really receive the gospel for what it is in scripture, what happens is God blesses that by by making a multi-ethnic family that is being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I believe, I really do believe that that picture is attractive to the world around us. That when we really see gospel change, when we really see multi-ethnic, when we really see people's lives changed by the gospel, people on the outside, especially during and coming out of a pandemic, will be drawn to that. So let's get the gospel right. And today we're talking about this aspect in Galatians chapter 3 of this multi-ethnic family. Sunni, uh, many of you have seen uh, this picture, and hopefully this kind of comes up okay online, those of you who are watching. This is traditionally called the Madonna, and it's been done many different ways. Um, and uh, just looking at this, this is Mary and the Christ child, right? And what are you, just looking at that, what do you, what do you kind of notice about the Madonna? This is the more traditional picture. What do you, you kind of notice about it? They're pretty white, aren't they? Both, man, Jesus is just white. Man, that is a white baby. Okay, now um, this is the church of the Annunciation in Nazareth. This is a Catholic church in Nazareth. Um, Now think about Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up, right, as a boy. And and just think about this, this story of the Bible, and especially as it relates to our passage today, Abraham, this this, you know, fairly wealthy for his time guy who God calls out of the land of Ur, he calls out of Babylon. God says, I'm gonna bless you and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. That's a pretty big statement for some Middle Eastern guy roaming around the desert thousands of years ago. Now that blessing, we're gonna see, that blessing is actually the person of Jesus Christ. That blessing comes, and here is a poor Jewish boy who grows up in the town of Nazareth. Today, the town of Nazareth is about the size of Hillsborough. But the time of Jesus, was probably 500 people. Okay? I mean, it's a ho-dunk town. Okay? In the middle of, I mean, just not, not a big thoroughfare. And yet, all the nations of the world bless through Jesus who grew up there. Now, this church, this is why I'm sharing all this, this church is known for, they have some beautiful mosaics all throughout the church. And what they have done is from every different country or many different countries, they have different mosaics representing the Madonna. Um, this one here, uh, you can kind of see, it's just beautiful, um, different colored um, uh, Mary is wearing there. And this is from Spain. This is the, the Spain Madonna. This is uh, Sylvania, okay? And um, what's interesting is, is that the, 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 facial, the, the clothes and the facial um, tones change by region. This is Greece. And uh, you can kind of see here, many of them are just marked with the nation and they're just kind of really, really beautiful. This is uh, Bolivia. Um, this is one of my favorites. This is Cameroon. And the drums there represent uh, the giving of gifts to the Christ child. Um, This is Chile. 
Um, also, much different look, skin tones and clothes, right? Uh, China, the Madonna. Uh, another, this one, just look at the beautiful colors here. Uh, this is Croatia. Um, beautiful. Uh, uh, Singapore. Or excuse me, uh, this one is Japan. I, I think I skipped Singapore. Beautiful, beautiful. And so it just, here's the, here's the story over and over again. Same thing, each nation has changed the picture of the Christ child and Madonna. Now, look, they were, they were Jewish. They were Hebrews. Much darker skin than you and I. But, but what are these mosaics telling us? Is everybody has attached their story, not everybody, but the followers of Jesus, have attached their story to the Christ child that represents multiple nations. And I know that you probably have a picture in your head, but that picture is based on our culture, our backgrounds. And so we're reminded again that the gospel creates a multi-ethnic family that is transformed by the Spirit. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we started last week in verses 1 through 6. And uh, let me just read from verse 1. We're going to get hopefully get through to verse 22 today. Bigger passage, but it's all st- kind of same in the context here. So let's just start from the beginning. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the law? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Know then that those of faith uh, who are sons of Abraham. Excuse me, read that again. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, notice, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, Deuteronomy 27. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them, Leviticus 18. Christ redeemed us, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Leviticus chapter 21. And that, so that in Christ, in the Messiah, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Today, we're going to look at how faith in Christ forms a multi-ethnic family. Faith in Christ brings the promised spirit, and faith in Christ is superior to the law. Some of you who grew up in the church remember the song. Uh, I had to look it up again. I remembered singing it. I said to myself, surely there is more to the song. But the song that we sang in Sunday school many, many years ago was Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. So I looked up, make sure I wasn't missing the second verse. No, it's, that's it. That's the whole song. Right arm, left arm, all these different body parts. Um, I don't know uh, what the right arm, left arm thing had to do with anything in the song except to make it fun for kids. But the principle was simply this. Father Abraham had many children. And if you are in Christ, you are one of them. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Faith in Christ forms a multi-ethnic family. Look at it again in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Faith brings family. When we have faith in Christ, when we place that faith in him, when we choose to follow Jesus, we become part of a multi-ethnic family who, just so you know and put it in context for us as Westerners, whose father was an Easterner, dark-skinned Abraham. We become part of this family. Now, for some of us, this concept is good. For some of us, this concept is difficult. Many of us come from 
what, what do we say, just kind of dysfunctional, right, families? You know what, I'm, if you read the book, Father Abraham's family also very dysfunctional. But what he is saying is that in Christ, we become part of this promise that was given to him and is fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. Second, faith brings justification. It should stand out to us. It doesn't now because it's been so many years. But what Paul is saying here in verse 8 is shocking in a sense of, of who he's writing that to. In the scriptures, foreseeing that God would what? Justify the Gentiles. That one day God was going to declare through this offspring, these outsiders, these uncircumcised, these non-Jewish people as being justified, made, made whole to the law. Non-law abiding people are going to be justified. And we see here that faith brings a blessing. And let me just say this, when, when Westerners throw out the word blessing, I, I think that we, we have a misconception. We typically interpret Western, uh, Westerners interpret blessing as being a three bedrooms, two bath, white picket fence, 2.5 kids, and a dog. That is, not what, that is not what Paul, Paul did not have that in mind when he wrote this. For him, blessing is clearly the promise who is the person of Jesus Christ. We are blessed in Christ. We are blessed through Christ. We, we often are looking for that next thing. What, what else? What else is God going to give me? How else is God going to, to bless me? What, what else is next for me, God? And, and what, what we are constantly reminded of, in Christ we have all that we need. Next, saving faith is believing the gospel. Let me just, uh, it was so important. Let me just go back to verse six. Just as Abraham believed God, not that he believed in God, he did believe in God, but he believed God's promise. Saving faith is believing the good news, believing the promise that he has given. And then saving faith is based on God's provision, not our performance. Here's the thing that we just keep getting wrapped up in. We keep getting wrapped up in is that we're saved by faith, but then somehow, after that, we live by the law. We're saved by faith, but, but we grow in Christ by our good works. And we raise some really good questions. Those, those of you who are part of first service, second service is very different. We, we do kind of a knockdown version of the, of the thing and then we, of the sermon, and then we let people ask questions. And, and last week, uh, we had really low attendance, but Rod and Angelica were here, so we had really good questions. And so one of the things that this passage brings up is that, so what's our part then? What do, what do we do? What's the part of the law and the rules and how do we, and we recognize that we contribute with the Spirit. We work in step with Him, but it's a work that He's doing. And we're gonna see a little bit of, at the end, we, we raise this problem that we're going to be solving in the next few chapters of what it means to be um, transformed by the Spirit. But what Paul clearly says, and this was, 
this is, I think, one of those verses we need to put up on our mirrors or something. He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Um, that was back in verse 3. And remember what we're saying is what he's saying is you are justified by the Spirit and you're sanctified by the Spirit. That, that's, that's the process. And so this, this faith in Christ forms this multi-ethnic family and this faith in Christ is bringing this promised spirit. Remember when Abraham received the promise, he was childless. And when the promise was made, God moves in and he creates a family where there was none. And there's three parts to, at least three parts, to the Abrahamic covenant, that God is gonna bless Abraham. We're seeing that that is through Christ. That God is going to create a multi-ethnic, multi-nation family through Abraham, that is clearly through Christ. And then that he is going to have a land, a place, which is clearly in Christ. We have this new family that will one day be gathered together back into the presence of God. So faith in Christ forms a multi-ethnic family. And second, faith in Christ brings the promised spirit. In one of the commentator, uh, commentaries I was reading, they said there's two types of people uh, from this passage. And as I read it, I said, well, there's really three types of people. So let's look at these three, t- three types of people. There are those um, that are in Christ, verse 9. Um, so then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So there are those who trust in, they have placed their faith in Christ. Let me just say this. When we're saying trust in Christ, when we're saying uh, we put our faith in, it's really an idea of, of, of what, how we live. This is, our, this is our foundation of how we live life. It's not just something you receive and you check and you say, okay, it's not like purchasing insurance for later. Okay, I have this insurance. This is, this is saying, I am going to take this as a way of life. I'm going to trust in Christ. And so there are those who trust in the Messiah through faith. And then in verse 10, he says, for all who look, rely on works of the law or under a curse. There are those who want to trust in the law. Now, here's the problem with the law. And we're going to get into this in a little bit more in the end, but many of us like law. We like rules because we can say, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, so I'm good. But what the Bible says is, look, if, 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 you, if you even break the law in the smallest way, then you've broken all of the law. And so those who trust in the law that, that isn't going to work too well. Now, in our culture, I would say, you know what? There are people who haven't trusted in Christ and they don't trust in religious rules anymore. What do they trust in? Themselves. And we really see this in the book of Judges and really all through scripture where the Bible says, and there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own and people today say, well, hey, look, I don't believe in your religious stuff. I don't believe in your religious rules. 
This is what I believe in. And there are rules that are created by them and for them. And they're really convenient. So faith in Christ forms a multi-ethnic family. Faith in Christ brings the promise spirit. We're, we're going into that. Three types of people, those who trust in Christ, those who trust in the law, those who trust himself. Now notice, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. All things, every one of them. There are some 366 rules, laws. Thou shalt not or thou shalt. So let me, those of you who want to trust in the works of the law, can you name them all? Because I guarantee if you can't name them, you're not keeping them all. See, the curse of the law, first of all, it, it brings a theological problem. And I, I think this theological problem is, is best summed up in Exodus chapter 33. And we don't need to turn there right now. We've looked at it as a church many times. I think it's one of the key passages in Scripture where God reveals himself and he reveals himself as a loving God, a forgiving God who forgives the sin. And you're just, oh, so, so awesome. And then in the next verse it says, but... He, know, he, he doesn't let go of the guilty. He, he punishes the sin to the second, third, fourth generation. You say, well, which is it? Does God forgive sin or not forgive sin? It creates this huge theological problem. God is a loving, forgiving God, 100%. God is also very law-abiding, and he is just. So, the, the law brings up a theological problem. How is God going to solve this problem? And I, the answer is Jesus on the cross in which God's justice and mercy is satisfied. It also brings a moral problem. And, and here's where we struggle, and if we're honest, we slip into this. Um, one of my favorite passages is, is uh, or favorite stories uh, in the New Testament is Jesus and the rich young ruler. Uh, there's just so, there's, I think three, it's recorded in three different of the Gospels. And this, this uh, young man comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. He says, what, what else do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the law. And, and the guy clearly, he sees the problem here. And he says, what part of the law? Can you narrow it down, 366? Can you narrow it down, Jesus, just a little bit? There's a lot there. And Jesus said, oh, okay, I'll narrow it down for you. Here's, he starts quoting the Ten Commandments. Let me narrow it down for you even further. You need to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this man wrongly answers, I've done that. How do I know he, I mean, I, I didn't walk with him. How do I know he hasn't kept it? Because loving your neighbor as yourself is near impossible. I mean, just this week alone, 
How many neighbors have I passed by holding a sign on the corner asking for money? How many people in the greater Portland area slept outside? How many people went in our, in our community alone with needs unmet? I know I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. If I'm honest, I've loved myself. And we talk about securing our future and securing our retirement and securing our home and securing our... That's loving self. And so Jesus, we have a moral problem. That is, even when we try to obey the law, we cannot. We can't fulfill it completely. And that brings a psychological problem. And the psychological problem is simply this. It's anxiety. If you really think about what it means, if you're really living and saying, I got to do all these, it, I, it's got to make you crazy, anxious, stressed out. Now, I know that, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here and I, I know that, that you are, are just like, I know that I'm saved by faith. I know, I know that. But here's what you and I, if we're honest, many of you, I, and I know some of you, and I know me. I know that God loves me. I know that I'm his child, according to the promises of the word. I know that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I know that one day I'll be in his kingdom. But don't you ever just wonder, is God really pleased with me? Is God getting frustrated with me? Is God tired of forgiving me? Am I hard to love? I mean, I've come to the conclusion, like, I'm okay. Maybe I'm not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But, you know, am I going to get a little bit of, eh, you know, you did all right. You see, we, we become anxious when we try to live according to the law instead of according by, by faith, by grace, by mercy. It, be, it becomes a relational problem. And we see the relational problem in the book of Galatians. People don't like Paul because he's preaching too much grace. People don't like the Judaizers because they're preaching too much law. And, and it's causing this huge conflict in the church. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And it, and it creates a social problem. And here's, here's at least in part what the social problem looks like. In Luke chapter 15... It says this, now, the tax collectors and sinners, okay, these are the people that are outcasts in society, especially from a, a Jewish perspective. These are people who have sold out either to the Roman government, become tax collectors, they're taxing their own brothers and sisters and making a profit off of it, or people who've just sold out to sin, sinners, prostitutes. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. To who? To Jesus. 
Why? Because he accepted them and loved them. It's the last time somebody accused you of hanging out with the wrong crowd. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. Some, in, in some translations, it said the Pharisees and scribes muttered. I, I like the muttered better. Ah, Jesus. You can, just, you can hear it. Muttered is one of those words that the definition is in, in reading the word. Muttered. They muttered about Jesus. Saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What does Jesus do? He tells three parables. Parable of the lost coin. The parable of the lost sheep. And the parable of the lost sons. And the third one is the punchline. And it's not about the prodigal son. It includes him. It's about the righteous young brother who says, I've kept the law. And this social problem happens when we believe we're better than other people because we're in Christ. That's the social problem. When we think we have a bigger right at something because of our blessing. The only blessing we have is Christ. And Christ mixed it up by hanging out with the least and the lost. So we're redeemed from the curse. Jesus became a curse for us. It's quoted from Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. When a person was executed in the Old Testament, they were typically stoned, um, which was usually meant by putting something, somebody in a circle down a little bit into a pit, and people just heaped rocks on them and stones, bigger stones, until they died. Then that person was taken, and they were hung on a tree. And that hanging on a tree was a, a representation of the fact that they were a symbol of divine rejection. And so even from the Old Testament, we have this view of earth and God and these people not being a part of either. They're hanging in the middle. And that was a symbol of being cursed. And so Jesus comes and he says in here, in this verse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was our substitute. He took our place and our curse upon himself. And through Jesus, the blessing comes. And so his conclusion in verse 14, at least of this little section, is so that in the Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive what? The promised spirit through faith. Not just that we would receive Christ or become followers of Jesus, but that we would receive the spirit. And so Paul then makes an argument that being faith in Christ brings the promise and it's superior to the law. So what is the reason of the, why did the law even come? 
And Paul gives us four things real quickly. We'll just jump into this and then I'll, I'll close. The first, the, the, the promise is superior to the law because it, of its confirmation. And so he says, to give a human example, brothers, even in a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it's been ratified. Once it's been confirmed or ratified, it's done. And what, what Paul is saying is, the, the, the promise came 430 years before the law. It stands as a ratified covenant, document, done, signed. Now, there's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into it, but if you remember, right, Abraham said, how am I going to know all this is going to be true? And God put him in a deep sleep, and he, he had him divide these, these animals and it was, an old, it was an, an old world way of making a covenant where somebody said, if anybody breaks the covenant, this is what happens to them. Usually it was a greater person, God, making a covenant with a lesser person. They're saying, if you break the covenant, this is what I get to do to you. But then God, through a smoking pot, walks through the middle of it. And what he says is, if you break the covenant, you get to do this to me which happens on the cross. It's been confirmed. Second, it's Christ-centered. Now, if, if we have this making the non-Jewish people observe the law, what it means is, it means that Jesus didn't fulfill the promise. It means that Jesus didn't deal with our sin. It means that we're not free. It means that God's blessing belongs to one family. If it's not in Jesus, then, then, then all these other things, therefore, are not true. No, it is Christ-centered. Verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is the Messiah. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously taken. It, it happens through Christ. And so he says that another way is the chronology. In other words, this came before this. It was ratified 430 years later, the law comes. And look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And that is complete. That's all it needed was God's promise. So then we ask the question, what is the purpose of the law? And we need to end here, but let me just, just real quickly. The law points to sin. Verse 19, why, was it, why, was the, why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come. The law serves as an, as a, as an in-between. The law serves as a guide, he goes on to say later in verse 23. And the law serves as a tutor. It guides and tutors us what it means to be in the family of God. But over and over again, the law points to Christ. 
Now look at verse 22. And this is why I broke it up this way. If you, if you look at verse 7, he says, no, then that. Okay, so what is he teaching us? And so then he says, to give a human example, here's, uh, or, or verse 10 is for all who rely on the works of the law. So he, he has a, an argument there. And then to give a human example, and I think it kind of sums up in verse 22. Here's his point. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus the Messiah might be given to those who believe. Faith in Christ brings the promise that is superior to the law. So how do we apply this to our life? We need to live in the reality of being part of God's family. A multi-ethnic family. A family that exists of multiple nations. It's not an American gospel. It's not an American religion. It is for all people of all time, the good news. And we need to live in that reality and see it. And you say, well, this is just my little place on the earth and this is where I experience it. No. You are going to be spending eternity, if you are a follower of Jesus, people of different languages and colors and backgrounds and diversity, and you need to embrace the family and admit that you are a part of a much greater family than you want to live as. Even in our culture, I recognize it still comes up today. Uh, I have been li- I've been pastoring this church now where I think I'm in my 12th year, if I did my math correctly. Okay, it's a long time. But I, still, some of you will point out occasionally, he's a California kid. I know you think about it. We're Oregon. Man, we hate those Californians. Some of you relate to, even within Oregon, a different culture. Or maybe you're from the east, or maybe you're from the south. So, oh man, my people are there. I have to admit, when, when we get to the California coast, sorry, it's just better than the Oregon coast. Okay, because that's where I grew up. Yahats is a long winter, Frank, that's what it is. California is actually a summer coast. Folks, we have chosen to have too small of an identity. We are multi-ethnic, multi-nation family under Jesus Christ. Let's stop pointing out our differences that are trivial and live in the reality of who Christ is. Live in the reality that we have the Spirit. This is hard for Baptists, I keep saying this, but Paul doesn't say, you have Christ, you're a Christian. He says, you have Christ, you have the Spirit. Live in that reality. And then finally, live in the reality that we can't live by the law. Now, I'm not saying just give it up so I can't do it, I'm going to live my own way, but we constantly want to redefine it. And it's just amazing. I, I hear Christians doing it all the time. Let me just give one illustration I grew up Baptist, and you know, and um, 
It meant that you, if you drank alcohol ever, you were going straight to hell. And then as I grew up, I, I heard that, you know, that's not a sin to drink alcohol. It's a sin to get drunk. And you know what I hear now? Honestly, from Christians. It's okay to get drunk if you do it in your own home. What verse is that in? It's okay if you get uh, drunk as long as it's not on hard liquor. It's, it's okay if it's just wine. What? What? And I actually knew, had a friend who was on an elder board, not in this state. One of the elders got a DUI, driving under the influence. And at the board meeting, they were having a discussion of whether that was really drunk or not. Whether the elder had sinned, because the legal limit was so low. By, by the world's definition, right? Right? Driving under the influence, not of the Holy Spirit. But we want to redefine the law. Why? So that it fits for us. And we can check the box righteous. And we do this a hundred different ways every single day. And the reality is we're not righteous apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we as a church show grace to other people because grace has been shown to us. May we receive people that are different than us because we have been received and we are different than, than Christ. May we embrace who we are based on a right gospel, not based on our definition of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenges that it brings. I thank you that you love us um, even when we fall short. I thank you that you loved us enough to send your son, Jesus Christ, who while we were yet sinners, while we were still shaking our fist at you, while we were still rebelling, you loved us enough to come and take our place. And we're reminded, Lord, that when we place our faith in you, we, we enter into a multi-ethnic family that is being transformed by your spirit. And Lord, may we stop being a a single ethnic family that is transformed by obeying the law. May we receive the gospel and be transformed by who you are and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. May we embrace the gospel wholeheartedly and live it out as a church. And I, God, I pray somehow in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of falling giving and participation in the church because of the world that we live in, that you would bless us and that you would be glorified, not because of our work, but because of your goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.